You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The scripture reading this evening comes from 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For these, there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God, that he has been born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for your word. We are so thankful for your Son. We are so thankful for your Spirit. We need you now. In this hour, we need you every hour. We need you um, in the next few minutes to uh, help us submit to your word to be transformed by your word. I need you now, Lord, to speak clearly your word. So we pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this evening. My name is Nathan. If I haven't met you, I'm one of the pastors. I'd love to, after the service, uh, we are nearing the end of our walk through this short letter of 1 John, one more week next week, and then Leviticus. That's not a joke, yeah. Uh, Five weeks in Leviticus. I think I am hopeful and confident that the Lord is going to do a great work in us, his people, through that book. Uh, But I hope 1 John has been helpful for you as well. It's been extremely challenging for me personally to wrestle through this stuff. This letter has made me stop and think, do I actually believe what I say I believe? But then it's also given me great confidence because of a great Savior. What a letter, what a Savior, what a gospel, and what a God. Uh, Well, last week we considered that in Christ we are no longer takers, but having been filled, we are givers. We no longer see people as commodities that can benefit us. That that is, if they don't benefit, benefit us, then they aren't important. No, we see all people as those who can be filled with the love of God. And God has given us, his people, his church, then to be fillers. And yet, We've thought many times 1 John is just a a wad of Christmas lights, beautiful but seemingly out of order. Paul's like a bird who flies from point A to point B. John is more like a butterfly bouncing here and there with no real discernible pattern. And John is going to butterfly even more this afternoon. Maybe even less like a butterfly and more like a tornado, just spiraling up and up and up. 
coming back to these same themes over and over and over again. But he's also beginning to wrap it up. There's going to be very little said today that we've heard read already from Tori or uh, that I haven't already almost said verbatim here from the pulpit uh, in these sermons already. Uh, John here is recapping and he is reiterating. But recapping and reiterating is really good. Uh, The Puritans had a phrase for when they would return to a text that they had already been recently preaching from, that they felt there were further gleanings from that particular crop. Just like when you harvest something, it's good to go back and pick up the things that you missed. Uh, Whatever you're growing, you get big stalks, but after you get the big stuff, stuff, you can go back and pick up the smaller stuff, the remnants that are just as valuable. And so John is basically reiterating, but he is repackaging in such a way that is new and fresh. And I think the question that he is trying to ask and answer for us tonight is, what is a Christian? Not necessarily who, but what makes someone a Christian? So that's what we're going to try to answer tonight too. So let me ask you all, either from walking through 1 John together or just pulling from the vast libraries of systematic theology or something that you have in your brains and your hearts. Uh, What is a Christian? What must you believe? What must be true of you? How do you become a Christian? Well, John, here in 1 John 5, is going to highlight six different things, which we're going to just jump right into now together. The first thing that makes someone a Christian is that that person has been born of God. 1 John 5, 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So what is first true of a Christian? At first glance, it seems that the first thing that John is saying is that a Christian is someone that believes that Jesus is the Christ. We'll get there. Or He's saying that the first thing that makes someone a Christian is someone who loves God or loves the other children of God. But if you look carefully, John is saying that faith in Christ and love of God and love of others are fruits of something else, fruits of something prior, something that has happened before. And what is it? That person has been born of God. That is receiving a birth from above, being born again. John has already touched on being born again being born again as children into the family of God. And he certainly talks about it in his gospel account, certainly in John 3, one of those famous passages where Jesus is explaining in greater detail to Nicodemus about what it means to be born from above or born again. Jesus is pushing Nicodemus like Israel before him and before us, that just like them, we can tend to convince ourselves that we had something to do with our salvation. We had something to do with our love of God and love for others. We can tend toward thinking that the parents of our first birth, perhaps in some way, made us um, more smart, more enlightened, more disciplined, whatever the case may be, brought us to a place where we got to a place where we understood things rightly so that we became Christians. But John, along with nearly every other biblical writer, puts God as the primary mover of our salvation. Just as we had nothing to do with our first birth, we are merely the recipients of it. The second birth is outside of us as well. It is a gift. When we help, think, when we help folks think through how to like think about their testimony, perhaps write their testimony in uh, getting baptized, we, we share a really helpful article with them. 
a blog post in which this writer says, most testimonies have one thing in common, me. Just listen, the testimony will usually be all about what their life was before they were saved and how different everything has been since their conversion. They'll share about how they've been set free from addiction, depression, financial bondage, and some other painful reality, and now they're filled with joy and peace. Throughout the testimony, you'll hear a lot about them and their story, and these are amazing things that we should all celebrate. But most of the time, you hear surprisingly little about God. Isn't that true? Perhaps that's true of you. Perhaps you wouldn't put, if again, on the theological exam put in front of you, you wouldn't say uh, that you are what saves you, but in reality, you tend toward thinking, even subconsciously, that what makes you a Christian is the things that you do and the things that you don't do. So you believe the right things. You go to church. You occasionally post the scriptures that you're reading on social media. You read the Bible occasionally or regularly. You don't do the things that the really bad kids or the lazy parents or the untrustworthy coworkers do. And when you put all of those things together in a blender, you mix it all up, what do you get? You get a Christian. But what is missing in all of those things, in all of those bullet points of spiritual resume? God the gospel. You have placed the whole emphasis of your salvation upon yourself rather than the great God who has moved toward you and saved you and redeemed you. The God who the scriptures are explicitly clear over and over and over again is doing the one saving, the one giving the life, the one giving the birth. So a Christian is one who has been born from God, received life from him. Remember, we've thought about that Spiritual life is actually abiding in him. There is nothing inherently spiritually alive in you in the same way that there is nothing inherently alive in a leaf when it is detached from the branch. The leaf will slowly wither and die, but when a leaf is attached to the branch, the very life of the tree flows through it, and so it is with a Christian. Can a detached leaf someone like you and me who left to ourselves is dead in our sins and our trespasses love others? Love others in the way that God intends for us? Can someone detached from spiritual life, dead in their sins and their trespasses, love God, love his commands, even believe in Christ? Can a spiritual corpse have faith? No, these are all fruits. These are all results from having first received life. So we start here. John says that a Christian is one who is spiritually dead but has now been born of God. But John is a pastor. He knows that there are some that might be, when they are reading these things, become now totally anxious. Have I been born of God? How do you even measure those things? So he's going to give us some further tests to think through, have we been born of God? So secondly, someone who is a Christian, someone who has been born of God, is someone who now believes that Jesus is the Christ. This goes back to what we talked about two weeks ago in the first half of chapter four, when we were thinking about false teaching, that a Christian isn't just someone who believes in God or believes the teachings of Jesus or even recognizes that Jesus was the son of God. A Christian is someone who believes that Jesus was the Christ, is the Christ, meaning, and we've thought about this before together, Christ is not Jesus's last name, son of Joseph and Mary Christ. Christ is a Greek 
word for the Hebrew word Messiah, meaning the anointed one, the promised one, the redeemer of God's people. God's one and only means of salvation for the world, his king that he has set upon the throne through which there is forgiveness of sins and access to God. Belief that Jesus is the Christ is world-shifting, is life-changing. We typically, as Americans, tend to think about being a Christian as someone who believes the right things about God, who believes the right things about Jesus, about sin and ourselves. As long as we believe rightly, as long as we pray a prayer of repentance, then the rest really doesn't matter that much as long as we have the beliefs in the right place. As long as I believe rightly that Jesus was the Son of God and died on the cross for my sins, then surely I have been born of God. Now, don't hear me wrong on this. There is nothing you can do to save yourself, as we've already considered. All you must do, the only action that we must have for salvation, is to believe in Jesus Christ, the righteous one. If we confess our sins, John has told us, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But as the reformers would say, we are saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. So, if someone believes that Jesus is the Christ, then that means everything that that entails. Not just saying intellectually, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, but faith in that, placing all of my weight on that reality, is life-changing. In John's understanding, it would be impossible for you to believe rightly about Jesus and then go on living your life however you want to. John has a much fuller view of what salvation is and means for our lives. That believing that Jesus is the Christ means the entire gravitational center of your entire existence has now been changed for eternity. And not just in the future eternity, but now for eternity. So believe rightly that Jesus is the Christ, yes, but if you have been born of God and you believe that Jesus is the Christ, your whole world is changed. Which then leads right into our third thing. A Christian, being a Christian, means that you love God. A third thing. A Christian loves God. Again from verse 1, that you can't love God unless you have been born of him, which is exactly what we considered last week. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And from verse 19 of chapter 4, that we love because he first loved us. So, The reality is that now, as a Christian, the very one that we hated, we being of the world, in a realm of darkness, now we love as Father. The very one that we thought of as a dictator, an angry judge, the one that we thought of as an Ebenezer Scrooge or just a killjoy, this cosmic force out there that just doesn't want us to have any fun in life or something is now the one whom we come to see as beautiful, as magnificent, as glorious. We actually, as Christians, begin to love God more and more. We see him as the object of our worship and our greatest desires. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, now filling and forming us. Our hearts, our emotions, and our vision. Shaping us, even in lives 
or times of uncertainty, of anxiety, of doubt, we are nevertheless growing in our love for him, not perfectly, not without sin, but persevering love for God. Not an ongoing cynicism about who God is, not an ongoing suspicion that God is good or that he is actually loving us, but growing in him. Again, not without stumbling. We've already sung through. My, my faith is often cold, but he will hold us fast. And yet it is his love for us that then produces a love for him. So a Christian is someone who loves God. And just like last week, love for God then goes right into loving others, which is our fourth characteristic or a fruit of a Christian. Someone who loves others. John says that if you have been born of God, you now begin to, having desires and emotions and actions, begin to reorient so that you now begin to intuitively love the others who have also been born of God, your brothers and sisters. We've thought about this before, and we think about it actually every time we go through the membership class, that siblings can be such a funny thing you have brothers and sisters, you guys know anyone who talks bad about their brother or sister like all the time? You meet for coffee and they just talk about this really difficult situation that they had last week with their sister or with their brother. But the moment that you say something negative about that brother or sister, they snap at you in defense. Like, oh no, like, I can say those things about my brother and sister, but no, 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 no. You, you don't talk about my brother or sister that way even though we're saying the exact same things that just came out of their mouth last week. There is a natural relationship that even though sibling relationships may not always be peaceful, there is a familial bond that recognizes that you are in it for the long haul with one another. This doesn't mean that we only love Christians. Kyle really helped us thinking through that in his uh, sermon from 1 John 2 in February or so. We don't exclusively love Christians. Our love for God and for the church should explode outward towards those who are outside the church. We don't get a free pass to hate those outside of Christ. No, we love all people because having been filled, now we are fillers and not takers. But we love the church. We love those in our body. We are the same body. The head cannot hate the foot. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. We have a need for each other and we protect and we preserve one another. So can I push us here a little bit? A few of us were reflecting a week or so ago on the life of our church and one of you observed that it seems like COVID has kind of created these isolated silos in our church. These are not a bad thing. Many of you in our GCs have grown really, really deep with one another. It's amazing. But this new social reality has kind of caused us to kind of pull up the drawbridge a little bit, thinking that there might be only so much, much of me to go around. Now, it's good and right for us to go really deep with a fewer, a smaller group of people. It's very difficult to go both a mile wide and a mile deep. Because often when you're a mile wide, it's easy to stay merely just an inch deep. But it's also possible to be a mile deep and only an inch wide. So we're going to be kicking up some potlucks and some other opportunities for us to begin 
getting to know each other a bit more widely in the coming months. But let's not miss out on opportunities to love those in our body who are like right in front of you or literally right beside you. I'm not going to have us do this now, though Kyle might have us do it at the end of when we're wrapping up things here, just turning and saying hello to someone that you haven't met. Uh, Many of us, I think, came in a time uh, when we were all wearing masks and then it got weird of like, I don't know uh, if I've met this person or not and just push through the awkwardness and get to know one another. Start having coffees again with people outside of your GC, inviting each other into our homes to love one another because Jesus has first loved us. But then, John does a really funny thing in verse 2. Last week, all through chapter 4, we saw John saying that, hey, you want to know if you love God? You love your brother. That was kind of the point of last week. If you say you love God, a test for that is if you love others. But here in chapter 5, verse 2, he flips it. He says, by this we know that we love the children of God. By this we know we love others. When we love God and obey his commandments. You want to know how you know you love others? If you love God. Come on, John. He seems to just be going, just making like this circular argument. You want to know how you love God? You love others. You want to know how you love others? You love God. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones has really helped me in understanding John's thinking here. Uh, Lloyd-Jones says this. He says, here's a circle. And here are, these are particular points on it. Now, because it's a circle, you must have points. If you do not have one, you do not have any. It is no longer a circle. You can start at whatever point you like, and if you want to know whether you are right on that point, you make sure that the other points are present as well. In other words, the great thing to know is that we are on the circle, that we have the life, and we know that if we have life, it will manifest itself in certain ways. If I have one, I must have all. If I am doubtful of one, well, now let me examine the rest. If all of this is the Christian life, loving God and loving others, then we must have all of these points on the circle. We lose one, certainly we lose two or three, and the circle falls apart. He's saying that if you have been born of God, you have the life of Christ, you don't then say, well, I'll maybe get around to loving others someday. Or maybe I'll care about God's commandments for me when I get older or when things settle down a little bit in my life or get easier what Jones is saying that John is saying, if you do not love others, you are now still a continual taker of others. You are not a filler. You don't love God and his commandments. You are not on the circle. You may not be on the circle of God's life in you at all. You subtract, you subtract one of the points of the circle and you don't have a circle. He's giving us tests to reflect, to examine our lives. Again, like we've thought about, maybe not hour by hour, day by day, even week by week or month by month. But giving us tests to stop and consider and to reflect, have I grown in my love for God this year? Have I grown in my love for others? Love for the church? Love for my obedience? All of these things. Now I hope, I, I hope John haven't, hasn't flooded you with doubt again as we begin to think through these things. Oh man, I'm, I'm actually not loving God and loving others the way that I ought. Well, we'll come back to what John says in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 in just a bit be reminded of what Jesus has done for us. But a person who has, is a Christian is someone who has been born of God, who believes that Jesus is the Christ. He or she loves God, loves the brothers, loves others, loves the church. 
And we've already mentioned it, but now, fifthly, a Christian is someone who loves God's commandments. Verse 3, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Now, quick aside that we should spend like an entire Sunday on, a little sermon within a sermon. Uh, John isn't just talking about the Ten Commandments here, that we keep his commandments. He's not necessarily even talking about the Old Testament law. We are no longer in the Old Covenant, so we are no longer bound to the Mosaic law, the law of Moses. We aren't held to ceremonial type stuff about not eating pork or wearing garments with two types of cloth sewed together. Again, we'll spend five weeks or so in the book of Leviticus to think through these things more deeply. But here's the thing. Jesus actually ups the ante with the law of Moses, with what Paul calls the law of Christ. And some theologians boil the law of Christ down to the commands that the Lord Jesus has given in his public ministry as they are informed by his own example. So all the stuff that we see in places like from the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to some of the things that Jesus says for you to do, to obey. Don't be angry with anyone. Don't lust. Keep your word. Love your enemies. Do not do religious stuff for show. Don't love your money more than God. Don't be anxious and on and on and on. That's just from the Sermon on the Mount. There are countless other commands or imperatives that Jesus gives in the gospel. But also, the law of Christ consists of the demands laid upon believers in the New Testament, the the New Covenant document, the letters of the New Testament. So, you might consider the commandments that John is talking about here, the commands that Paul might give us, like in Ephesians 4, of be imitators of God, walk in love. Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, but let there be thanksgiving. These are all commandments given to us in the New Testament. Or the commands just here in 1 John. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Abide in him. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. Love one another. So the law of Christ does not cancel out or deny the law of Moses, but it ups the ante into what a true heart of God has been made into, the the heart of the law. Moses has retired. Moses is out sipping Mai Tais on the beach because his work is done. He is retired. The law of Moses has been fulfilled and absorbed into the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Again, something we'll think quite a bit about in the coming weeks. But Jesus brings a law which he sums up into two laws. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your soul and your mind. And the second, which is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, we might sum up the law of Christ, loving the commandments of God, being passion for God and compassion for people. So what's the point? Someone who has been born of God loves the law of Christ loves these kinds of commandments. Not so much that they do them and live them out perfectly, no. If we say that we, are, we do not have sin, we deceive ourselves, John has told us. But that we, the fundamental disposition of our heart toward the commandments of God has now changed. Why? Because we as Christians now see God's commandments, the very law of Christ, not as burdensome, 
Not something that is out to ruin our fun or crush us with guilt, but as a freeing new way of life. That's for God's glory and for our good. And so Jesus calls his disciples, calls his people to come to him. All who are heavy and are weary and heavy laden, burdened, burdened by the attempt of righteous living, and Jesus will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. His commandments are not burdensome, John says. We've thought about even last week that you are what you you love, but it's equally true that you obey what you love. We naturally just respond and obey to the things that we love. If we hear the commands of God and scoff at them, continuing in our sin, we are saying, not only do I not trust that you have my good in mind, but I do not love you. I do not trust and love you enough to obey you. I love popularity more than you. I love myself more than you. So I will obey myself rather than you. So in short, if we scoff at God's commandments, if we continue to make ongoing excuses or justifications why this command in the Bible no longer applies to me or uh, is just too difficult for me or this biblical author or God himself just doesn't understand my situation or on and on and on, John says that it's not likely that you have the life of Christ within you. You have not been born of God. But, verses 4 and 5, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? What John is saying, what he's meaning with this overcoming the world, almost certainly he is meaning overcoming worldliness, what we thought about in chapter 2. Overcoming the things of the world, overcoming the darkness of the world. And how did he define worldliness in chapter 2? Worldliness is the, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride in possessions. So if you are born of God, you will, over the course of your life, not next five minutes, but over the course of your life, overcome these natural and worldly desires. And in chapter 2, what was John's conclusion? He said in verse 15, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And he's making the exact same point here in chapter 5. That those who have been born of God have overcome the world, have overcome the darkness because of what Jesus has done in his people. Again, chapter 2, chapter 5, just a mess of Christmas lights. Butterfly bouncing around everywhere. But he's making the same points over and over again. But then he gives us a last test to examine ourselves. In verses 6 through 12. A sixth and final thing that a Christian is, that a Christian does, that a Christian believes. Now lastly, a Christian believes God's testimony about himself. Verse 6 Again, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, 
the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. There's a lot here. And we don't have time to go through all of the options throughout the centuries of what in the world all this blood and water stuff is. That's a strange verse. A really, really strange verse about blood and water. There is undoubtedly more to it than this, but at its bare minimum, I think John is saying this. The water refers to Jesus' baptism both in his identifying himself with us as a human and being our representative and the baptizing ministry of John the Baptism or John the Baptist that baptism represents that of repentance a turning from sin and to Christ and the blood his atoning work on the cross as John says in 1 John 1:7 that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin This water and the blood, along with the Holy Spirit, testify about who Jesus was and is, what he came to do. And so here's the point of all of this testifying and testimony talk in these seven verses. John is saying, we tend to, as humans, just accept the word of other people. We tend to. We can be a bit suspicious, especially if we think poorly of the person's talking, that we can maybe think, ah, I don't really buy that. But we tend toward, not in a gullible way, but just as a trusting way, we tend toward accepting the word of other people, especially when it is a legal testimony in court. Well, verse 9, if we accept a human testimony, we had better accept the testimony of God about himself. And what is the testimony of God? What is the clearest thing that he has ever said about himself, about his character, about his plan of salvation? The clearest thing that God has ever testified is Jesus Christ. The triune God's testimony is a person. God has explained himself to us. He has explained his character. He has explained what was going on throughout the whole Old Testament. He has explained how he will save us, how he will transform us, He has explained himself in Jesus, the greatest story that has ever been told, the story that we long for, the story that we grasp after. It's here on full display, plain for us to understand. But then John does something shocking. Excuse the mild irreverence, John does, because God can never be put on trial, but it's now like as if We are in the courtroom and God himself is on the witness stand explaining who he is and what he has done to save humanity. Yet some in the courtroom, then as God is testifying about himself, some in the courtroom stand up and say, objection. I do not believe him. He is lying. Verse 10, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. God is not a liar. But if you deny what he has revealed and testified about himself, John is saying you are calling him a liar. You are saying that he is a liar. If you do not repent of your sin and trust in the work of Christ, 
his life and death and resurrection on your behalf, you are saying, God, you are a liar. You are not who you say you are. Jesus is not who he says he is. This is not the way of salvation that you have provided. You are a liar. I don't think that I need to emphasize how dangerous and arrogant of a position for such a minuscule and insignificant human being that is to take on, to call the very God and creator of the universe a liar. And so, the test that John gives us to examine who we are is, have we been born of God? How do we know if we've been born of God? We believe that Jesus is the Christ and all that entails. We love God. We love others. We love his commands. And we accept God's testimony about himself through his son, Jesus. Well, next week is all about assurance. But just in case, hopefully the beginning four chapters of 1 John have kind of immunized you against doubt. But what if all this stuff has just flooded you with doubt again? Anxiety about your salvation. I don't love God as I ought. I still am quite selfish. There are plenty of commandments that I not only don't obey, but I don't like. What then? Well, let me quote again from Martin Lloyd-Jones. In case you don't know Martin Lloyd-Jones, this is one of the greatest pastors and preachers who's ever lived. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people have been influenced and encouraged by his life-changing ministry. And that guy, this guy, Martin Lloyd-Jones, says this. He says, I'm still working out this faith. He's a Welsh guy in the 50s, but I'm not gonna, I'm just gonna read it like an American. He says, I'm still working out this faith. There are times when I fail because in my folly, I do not run to the strong tower because I try to fight in my own strength and the enemy defeats me. There are times when I go down. Now, this is important, he says. At that particular point, there is nothing that is so liable to happen to me as that, it, that the enemy will come and say something like this to me. Ah, well, you failed. You have fallen. You have sinned against the Lord. You have gone back. What is the use of talking about your faith? Look at yourself. And there I am, overwhelmed with a sense of failure and frustration, and I wonder whether I have a right to turn to God and to pray. I've let myself down. I have let God down. I have let Christ down, and I fell utterly hopeless with a sense of despair and futility. Anybody? All of us? Now, he says, there is nothing more precious at that point than to know that Jesus is the Son of God and that he tells me that though I have sinned, though I have failed, as we have already found in this letter, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And, John says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation of our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And that he loves us. He is a good father. There is nothing then that so enables me to overcome 
as that deliverance from sins and failure, from that sense of despair that tends to overwhelm me when I feel I have gone down and cannot rise again. The blood of Christ will cleanse me. And I rise up and go forward on my journey. This is the Christian life. Falling on our face over and over again, but he will hold us fast. Trust in Jesus today. Trust that he lived the life that you could not, that you would not live. The death and the wrath of God that you so justly deserved. Haven't we all? Trust in him today. Trust in him tomorrow. Trust in him for eternity. And when you do, you will see these evidences, these fruits more and more in your life. Slowly, not as fast as we would like. Out of loving God, loving others, loving his commands. If those things are absent from your life, completely absent in your life, if it is possible that you, are not, you have not been born of God, that there is a moment in your life that you need to now do real business with in coming to God in repentance and in confession. Remember, it's good and wise and healthy to examine yourself, to look for fruits of rebirth in your life. And yet it is the grace and the love of God that does the work teaching and shaping, forming and filling, transforming spiritual toddlers into those who can then walk, those who can then run in freedom, transformed by the Spirit. And so, I know I'm just like totally overdoing it with quotes here, but it's been like two years since I shared this, and I gotta do it again. This is from probably my favorite blog post of all time guy named Jared Wilson. Just hang in there for a second here. He says, even as the Spirit bears more and more fruit in my life, even as I learn to trust more and more, when I do finally cross that heavenly finish line, there will nevertheless still be sins unrepented of, especially among the sins that I don't even remember or can't even see. And I will pull my sorry self across that finish line some stupid sin still entangled around my ankle, and I will look up. And I will look up and see Christ the judge standing over me, looking over my poor, pitiful soul. And you know what he'll say? Well done. This is the Christian life, clinging by faith oftentimes so weakly, with sin still just entangled around our ankles. And yet, he will welcome us. Christ the judge, Christ our brother, God the Father, the Spirit who has gotten us there all along. This is the Christian life, and it is this life that we live together, upward and onward, everybody. You have fallen on your face, likely today, likely this week. The enemy is a liar. We can come to him, and he welcomes us to come to him, that he might transform us to the very end. Let's pray for his help. Our Father, we are so thankful that you are a good Father, that you are not disappointed in us, that you are not frustrated with us. You are more committed to our holiness than we are, and we are so thankful for it. 
Oh, Spirit, we pray that you would fill our hearts this week with a renewed love for Jesus, with a renewed worship of you, O triune God, that you would give us renewed zeal and effort even to desire to obey you, renewed effort and zeal even to share this love that we have experienced with others, to love the church well, to love those outside the church well. God, fill us, shape us, bring us to the end, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.